RhythmLink International designs, manufactures, and distributes medical devices for a variety of applications in the neurodiagnostic space, including intraoperative monitoring, electroencephalography, and more. RhythmLink believes in providing a superior product at a fair price, but they do so much more. As a leader in innovation and customer service, RhythmLink prides themselves on being a long-term partner for maximizing healthcare workflows and improving patient care. Contact RhythmLink today for all your device needs, including their FDA-cleared MR conditional EEG electrodes. Learn more and request free samples at rhythmlink.com slash stimstuffpod. That's S-T-I-M-S-T-U-F-F-P-O-D. Hey yo, October is here, which means the fall conference season is in full swing. Things are busy for me, and that's why I took a few weeks away from podcasting. Hope you don't mind. In the sports world, I can't help myself. The Eagles are undefeated, and the Phillies are in the playoffs, at least for now at the time of this recording. I have a great guest for you today, and we're going to be talking about mentoring and neuromonitoring. I'm Rich Vogel, and this is Stimulating Stuff. Let's go. Welcome back to the Stimulating Stuff Podcast. I'm Rich Vogel, and my guest today is a senior surgical neurophysiologist and market development coordinator who publishes a weekly post on LinkedIn called Wisdom Wednesday, where she espouses the benefits of outlandish ideas like teamwork, culture, communication, and mentorship. A few months ago, I heard her sharing some mentoring advice on Scott Moore's podcast, and I immediately reached out to connect. She just seems like the kind of person who leaves everything better than how she found it. Let's find out if that's true. Welcome to the show, Shakira Tassone. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. So I noticed on LinkedIn that you're not far from my hometown of Philly. Uh, You live in Allentown, PA, is that correct? I do, yes. I live on the outskirts in Emmaus. Oh, okay. And I've been in that area a lot. I used to go skiing up there when I didn't feel like driving to Vermont. So I actually like it up there. Bear Creek is right up the street. It has a great little mountain and it's great to teach kids on. Yeah, yeah. That's one of the places that I learned. And you went to Bloomsburg University. Is that right? Yes, I did. So I'm just going to go out on a limb here. Did you happen to take any neuroscience classes while you were there? Actually, I didn't. Funny enough, that was one of the only electives that I didn't have the opportunity to take. Oh, okay. The reason I ask is a friend of mine is a uh, neuroscience professor there and just would have been small world stuff if you had ended up taking a class with him at some point. So his name's Kevin Ball. Does that ring a bell at all? I was going to say, if it was Dr. Williams, I actually took a graduate neuroscience class to achieve my senior level status, and that was with Dr. Williams up at Bloomsburg. Oh, okay. So what does that mean um, to achieve senior level status? Did you have to take a graduate? So you had to take a graduate course in neuroscience, and what what did that achieve for you? 
Um, so when you go from a lower level neurophysiologist to a higher level neurophysiologist, it generally means that you have at least seven years of experience under your belt and you have um, numerous skill set built up of advanced cases, uh, craniotomies, vascular cardiac cases, things like that. And you also have to be well-rounded in your studies. So you had to take two graduate level courses if you didn't already have um, a PhD and as well as a verbal and a written examination. Oh, okay. Interesting. So let's just go back to the university piece. So you graduated from college and what did you study there at Bloomsburg? I was actually pre-med physical therapy. And where did you go after that? After that, I went to the Pennsylvania College of Health Sciences, and I got my certification in nuclear medicine. Did you work in nuclear medicine for a while, or did you go straight into neuromonitoring? I did. I worked in nuclear medicine for about a year and a half. It proved to be very challenging with the amount of oncology patients that you had the unfortunate event of seeing pass away um, and many children from neuroblastoma. So then I pivoted and I went into uh, neurodiagnostics and I got a job at the hospital doing uh, neurodiagnostics in the lab, which is what brought me into the world of IONM. I actually started out in a one of the last full labs that exist that do SSEPs, VEPs, BEARS, and the whole nine. Oh, okay. And I think I saw you were registered in EEG. Is that right? Yes. Is there anything in particular about your background that you can point to that you think really prepared you well for working in neuromonitoring? Um, I think it was a culmination of all of the different steps that I took, um, taking multiple anatomy and physiology classes for my pre-med undergrad, and then getting into nuclear medicine, learning all of the different x-rays and MRIs and spec CTs and PET CTs. I learned all of that imaging and how to read that imaging, which really allowed me to thrive in IONM when looking at spine cases or brain cases, I already knew how to read them. So it wasn't difficult for me to understand what was going on once I got the grasp of the actual procedural steps. Wow, that sounds like a great background. And so you've been working in neuromonitoring for how many years now? Um, Going into my eighth year now. So you've been in the field for a while now. If you just, I, I like to ask people this question sometimes. If you were to go up to a random friend of yours or somebody in your family, maybe parents, and just say to them, what do I do for a living? How do you think they would respond? This is actually funny because my fiance and my mother have the same trouble with this. So I told them the easiest way to tell people is that I monitor people's nerves to protect them during various surgeries. And that's usually enough to get them by without getting into too much detail and getting things wrapped up. <laughs> oh, well, well, if they can repeat that back, that's better than most people I know. So that's good. That's good. <laughs> so you've been in the field for eight years. At this point in your career, is there something that you can point to that's been a career accomplishment that you're most proud of? Thus far, I would just say, uh, you know, every single day that I go to work, I am still learning new things, and I find that to be an accomplishment. Many people get into the mundane of doing the same thing over and over again or just kind of turning mindless, and I try to 
you know, stay active with every skill set that I have and always do what's best for each patient. Even if it takes a little more effort, I don't just do, you know, the status quo. So I pride myself on that as well as um, my publication that I had that was published last year in the Spine Journal with alongside of uh, Brian Wallant and Andy Sistokas. That was probably a highlight of my career. I've been looking to get a publication for quite some time to leave my mark in neurodiagnostics. So that was that was a big one. That was a great paper, by the way. So thank um, you. Really important paper. Is there something that you look back on that you would say is a failure of yours that you really learned from and that you use to teach other people so that they don't make the same mistake? I think if anyone said that they didn't have a moment that was a mistake in their career, that they would be lying. Um, you know, our greatest successes generally rise from the mistakes that we make because that is a pivotal moment that we are like, that really matters. We better not do that again. Anything from, you know, plugging something in wrong when you're tired and realizing it early enough, that's always, you know, a crucial moment that you, you'd mm-hmm. like to catch. Um Probably if I if I had to think back, I would just say looking back on when I first started doing brain tumors, you think you really know what you're doing. And there's so many gray areas to monitoring a brain tumor correctly that you can always change what you're doing and optimize that. So I would say just doing more and more craniotomies over the year has really allowed me to be a better clinician in every sense of the manner. There are some of my favorite cases. Thinking about yourself and your personality, is there something about you that you find people are generally surprised to learn about you? Yes, it's actually I power lift and most people are really surprised to hear that because I'm only five foot two and 110 pounds soaking wet. So when they <laughs> see that, they're like, Oh, there's no way that you do that. But then I show them a video and then they're like, Oh, okay. That's really surprising. <laughs> oh, wow. So I, I do want to get into some different topics about things like mentorship and everything. But since you mentioned uh, powerlifting and there may be other things that are passions of yours So I want to go a little bit of a different direction here. Have you ever seen the movie Everything, Everywhere, All at Once? I have not. So the premise of this is that this woman or anybody in life makes decisions, right? And each decision that you make, no matter how big or how small, sets you on a certain path. But what if you went the other direction? And Each of those directions in this movie is a different parallel universe where this character has become an expert in something totally different. So in one universe, she's like a martial arts expert. In another universe, she's a surgeon. In another universe, she's a dancer. So my question for you is, what what other universe exists for you if you could pick another profession that you could have an equal level of or even greater level of expertise or skill in what would that profession be i would say that i always really liked cardiology and some of my favorite cases to do are cardiovascular surgery 
monitoring and we don't do enough of it. And I feel like it's not prevalent enough uh, throughout any company. So if I had to gain more understanding or insight or be a different career path, I, I would pick cardiothoracic surgery. I've always really enjoyed the anatomy of the heart and all of the blood vessels and just everything that goes into that. And it personally hits me hard because my dad, unfortunately, suffered uh, two heart attacks. So it made me want to learn more all about that entire field. So I would have to say cardiothoracic surgery. Oh, that's a great answer. I should ask that question of everybody to see how different people answer that question. <laughs> so I want to transition talking about some mentorship now. I mentioned in the intro here that I heard you talking on Scott Moore's podcast about uh, mentoring ideas and tips. You've written a lot publicly about mentoring. How did this topic become of interest to you? Um, mentoring first became of interest to me. Actually, when I started my very first career, I was a simulation technician before I did nuclear medicine. And I did that while I was going through school. And it essentially allowed in nursing students to learn their skills, like basic CPR, IV placement, things like that. So I would help them with that. I seen so many students struggling to do basic skills and teachers not putting enough effort in to specialize each instruction for each person. Not everybody's a visual learner. Some people are book learners. Not everyone learns the same way. So when I heard of mentorship and I started reading books about it, it's supposed to be, you know, peer to peer at the end of the day. So you find somebody that can take an interest in you and really teach you in different ways how to do your career or whatever it may be to the best of your ability. And I thought that was so important. And to this day, I just don't see it happen enough. And the most successful people thrive with not just one mentor, but multiple mentors across their entire career. You can't get anywhere in the world alone. Um, so I think that just people taking interest in other people is really important. Couldn't agree more. And when you think back into the course of your career and being a mentee prior to becoming a mentor, is there someone that you can point to who you think has been your most important professional mentor? I would say for IOM specifically, my manager has been extremely instrumental in my career pathway. He is a wealth of knowledge and I appreciate him from the bottom of my heart for just being an extremely good manager and a wealth of knowledge that I can just sponge from because that is how I was since I was little. That's how I learn is why is it like that? Why does it do that? Just asking why a million times because that's how you learn the best is knowing all of the reasons why. So then if someone asks you that, you know why. I never wanted to be the clinician in the corner that doesn't know or just stands there and hits buttons. I always wanted to know the deeper reason why so that I could understand from 
the lowest level to the highest level so that I always have an answer. And I pride myself on that. And he helped me with that extensively. He's taught us to, you know, be the best clinicians that we could be, do what you would do for your own parents. And I think that that's a really important way to lead every day of your life is to put your best foot forward and treat every patient as if it was your loved one and do what you would want done for them. Sounds like a wonderful mentor. And aside from having a mentor, what would you say are some of the best resources that have helped you out along the way, whether that's books or websites or technology, really any, you could take it anywhere you want, but what would you say are the best resources that have helped you? The best resources that helped me personally might be silly to say, but we are in a digital world. YouTube was extremely instrumental just when I was first learning to, you know, I would research every single surgery before I did it. So I knew what I was getting into. So I knew what to expect. So I could study the procedure steps. So I knew what to listen for and what to know, because listening is a key part of our job. If you can't see what they're doing, you could hear the instruments and then you know where they are in the surgery. And I wanted to learn that immediately because I knew how important that was. Journal articles, I've tried to read tons and tons of spine journal articles or asset journal articles or ASM articles, any article that I can get my hands on on some topic that I thought was difficult to understand. I would just dive really deep into journal articles, especially um, suboccipital cranies. There is so much to know about them and all of the cranial nerves and the brainstem and what could go wrong. So I just dove deep into tons of research and videos to ensure that my depth of knowledge is as deep as it can be for the point that I'm at. And that really proved to be extremely effective and helpful. And I also asked the surgeons questions. At the end of the day, the surgeons are people. And if they don't want to talk, they don't want to talk. But it's worth a shot to ask because they're the ones doing the surgeries and they're the ones that know. So I was never afraid to open my mouth or get told no or shut up. You know, I want to learn. I'm there to help them. So I think that that is a good place to go. That is such good advice. And such a variety too of resources that you've used. I know that, you know, not to detract from things like articles and books, which are super important in the course of your education and your development, but you mentioned YouTube and I feel like this is kind of an oxymoron. I feel like it's underused. So YouTube is so used. Here's a fun fact for you. <laughs> if you took all of the YouTube videos that are watched around the world in a single day and you put them back to back to back to back to back, it would take 167,000 years to watch those videos. That's how much YouTube is watched in a day. But I think YouTube is a great resource, as you said, for learning about surgical stages um, because there's so much out there that you, you might not be able to put your you know head over the drapes all the time or be able to watch what's happening in the microscope. But all of that stuff is on YouTube, and I feel like a lot of people don't use it. So you've been teaching in the OR for a while now, I'd assume? Yes. Tell me about your teaching style in the operating room. 
Um, I wouldn't say that I have any particular style. Um, I believe that everyone learns differently and the interactions that I have with the person that I'm training, I just try to understand what their learning style is like immediately. I'll ask them a bunch of questions, try to learn a little bit about their life, see how they respond. And then I could usually catch on to like, if the light bulb is going on or not with what I'm saying. And I'll always follow up and say, does that make sense? Do you understand what I'm saying? And if they still look like a deer in headlights, I'll pivot, pull out my phone and bring up a picture of the anatomy and say, this is what's going on. I always pivot to a picture because I believe like truly that any person that is in science or in a medical field is a very visual learner. So I think having a visual of what is going on really helps them to kind of light bulb, even if just for a moment that it can attach their attention and make them understand why their modalities are applicable to what's going on. I'll start there and then just kind of move along um, and open them with questions. I'll always say, like, do you have any questions? Let me know what you need. What are you thinking about? Just the whole time you're there, I just let them know that I'm here for you. Any questions you have, concerns, I'm here to answer them. I'm not here to judge you or make fun of you or like say that you're stupid for not knowing something. There's no such thing as a stupid question unless you don't ask it. And I believe that. And I was taught that from a young age. I would imagine that you've taught a lot of people over the years. And I'm just curious whether or not you've observed some patterns in terms of certain personality traits that someone would need to have to be successful in the job in neuromonitoring? monitoring? Absolutely. The biggest problem that we always had, and I always think of one girl uh, really hard, she was very, very shy, and it was hard for her to speak up. And when she was speaking up, it still did not sound like she was speaking up. So I would make her go over to the surgical table and tell the surgeon because she wasn't speaking loud enough. And every time she came back, she seemed like really upset. And I'm like, what's wrong? And she's like, I don't like having to go over there. And I said, well, you won't have to go over there if you speak louder. I said, you know, a part of this job is to be outspoken and be confident. And, you know, just instilling those values in someone that doesn't have them is very hard and it takes a while to get comfortable in the OR number one, but also to get comfortable in your own voice. So communication clearly is first and foremost. So having a mouth and knowing how to use it is very important. And also, you know, knowing what you're doing and being confident in that. I think if you have those skills, you will thrive as well as being a people person and being able to take backlash. Unfortunately, you will receive a lot of backlash in the OR and you can't get upset about it or let it shake you. You have to roll it off your shoulder. Thick skin goes a long way and also just being an outgoing person. Absolutely. I imagine one of the things that you teach people that you work with, and I've I've seen you speak about this uh, in various formats, but I imagine one of the things that 
that you teach is delivery of high quality patient care. How do you how do you characterize that in your mind? Like when I say that to you, high quality patient care, what does that mean to you in the context of neuromonitoring? My immediate thought is advocating for your patient, you know, doing the most optimal protocol and plan for your patient, going above and beyond, double checking everything, making sure that what you're doing is appropriate for the situation, looking at the history, seeing if your signals line up with what the history said, checking the MRI, seeing if that makes sense with what your signals are showing conveying all of that information appropriately to the surgeon before, during, and after the surgery, following up with your patient after the surgery, seeing them pre-op, explaining to them what's going on, explaining what to expect, and from start to finish, just being there with the patient for the patient and doing what's best for the patient that is your job and that's what you're to do. And to me, that is the highest quality care that you can deliver is telling someone before a surgery, giving them peace of mind that you're there. You're there to help them, to keep them safe. You're going to be there talking to the surgeon, talking to anesthesia. And after the surgery, you're going to be there yelling at them to move things around to make sure that they're okay. You are there for them. That is a great message for the listeners. I hope everybody out there takes that to heart. So we're going to take a break here in a second for a word from our sponsor. And when we come back, going to share an idea with you and let you shoot holes in it and see what you think about it. So we'll be right back. Founded in 2006 and joint commission accredited since 2010, Interneuve Neuroscience provides 24-7 neuroscience services, including professional interpretation, IONM, and EEG throughout the country. Our mission is to deliver high-performance neuroscience services with the common goal to improve patients' lives. INN is privately owned and operated, allowing us to focus on decision-making and the best interests of the patient. If you need professional interpretation, IONM, or EEG, we will be honored to work with you. Our commitment to excellence extends beyond our services. It defines our culture. Join our team and be part of a dynamic community pursuing the highest standards, upholding integrity, fostering respect, driving innovation, and fueling our shared passion for delivering exceptional neuroscience services. To join the INN team, visit www.internerve.com or email us at careers at today. Zinnia X is a state-of-the-art electronic health record platform that helps you manage every aspect of your neuromonitoring practice. Their web, mobile, chat, and screen share applications are seamlessly integrated, allowing users to get things done from anywhere and on any device. Zinnia X uses the most cutting-edge technology to provide an efficient user experience and dramatically reduce man-hours spent performing mundane tasks. Schedule your demo by visiting them at zinniax.com. That's Z-I-N-N-I-A-X.com. Let Zinnia X help you put the focus back on patient care and growing your business today.
Veridical RCM is a special kind of revenue cycle management company specializing in intraoperative monitoring, billing, and collections, which is often misunderstood by the insurance industry, by hospital administration, and ultimately, patients. Veridical considers each contract a partnership, reviewing and making recommendations for improvement in all areas that impact revenue, including scheduling, credentialing, clinical documentation, infrastructure, charge master review, and facility contracting. The Veridical RCM team has a deep understanding of the changes affecting revenue with the implementation of the Federal No Surprises Act and each state's rules regarding surprise billing. They use this knowledge concurrently with each payer's medical policy guidelines to compliantly optimize revenue capture. Whether you choose to keep the revenue cycle in-house or outsource to a third-party billing company, you can definitely benefit from their guidance. Visit www.veridicalrcm.com for more information. That's V as in victory, E-R-I-D-I-C-A-L-R-C-M.com. And we're back. I'm talking to Shakira Tassone, senior surgical neurophysiologist and advocate for being what I call a competent mentor. And I'm going to share what I mean with, about that in a second. Before the break, we were discussing high quality patient care and teaching styles. And now I want to dive deeper into this conversation about mentoring and build a bridge to the patient care aspect. So I want to run an idea by you. This is something that has been in the back of my head for a few months, and I really want to get your input. Help me shoot holes in it. So the idea has to do with the factors that contribute to achieving success. However you define success in your life, that could be success in hobbies, love, child rearing, various aspects of work, and including mentorship. The way that I'm thinking about this, though, is for the neuromonitorist, for the average person working out there in the field and how they can achieve success. And I like to define success as we just did, which is reaching a level of expertise in your work that results in delivering the highest quality of patient care. Imagine a Venn diagram. So you've got three circles and they're overlapping in the middle. And each circle represents a factor or a force that contributes to a level of success. So each one only goes so far, but the place in the middle where they overlap, where all three of these come together, is where you reach the highest level of success. So my three circles are motivation, inspiration, and aspiration. And Motivation is something, well, it comes from Latin motivus. It means to move by force. But you can think of that as being something in your life like your salary or your contract or your bonus. The inspiration part, that comes from also Latin inspirare, blowing into something external that uses its influence to ignite something within you. And you could think of like an ember on a fire. For this piece, I like to think about the inspiration piece as being a competent mentor. So somebody who has expertise in one, the skills being taught, two, transferring knowledge or teaching, 
and three, being a mentor. So providing direction and vision. And then the third circle is aspiration. And that is something within you. So that's aspirare to breathe in from Latin, something external that you desire to attain, to gain through effort. Like I aspire to do this or to be this. And each of those things independently are good, but not great. So if you have motivation alone, you can become complacent. If you have inspiration alone, you can become dissatisfied because you're not achieving what you aspire to achieve. And if you have the aspiration alone, you could be misdirected because you don't have that mentor. So I feel like where these three things come together, these three circles come together, motivation, inspiration, aspiration is the place where you can achieve the highest level of success because you have all the things that drive you. What's wrong with this model? I think the model is pretty good, actually. Motivation, aspiration, and inspiration are all important, but it depends what your level of success is and the person that you're asking. So it's very subjective depending on who's asked. Yeah, I think so too. I I've asked a few different people and I've basically gotten the same thing. Uh yeah, it looks pretty good. So my next question is is there a person, a company, a concept, something out there in neuromonitoring that you currently admire? Yes. What I admire most is research institutions and I bring this up because of what I said previously and my desire to get cardiothoracic surgery underneath more neurophysiologist belts and out into the monitoring world more often. I think UPMC does a really good job, not to name names, but they do an exceptional job with research and what they do to inspire people to know the importance of neuromonitoring in heart surgery with the seminars and research articles that they've been putting out around that topic. And I think that that's fantastic. I've been trying to push it at my own institution. It's been getting some headway. Um, I've worked down at um, Pennsylvania Hospital with those surgeons down there doing some uh, cardiothoracic surgery with them. So I try to use them as clout in my own region to say like, hey, other guys are doing it. Like, it's really important. And if you want to optimize your patient and lower your stroke rates, you know, this is kind of how to do that. And that's a KPI for most people. So that's what I would say is I think the coolest thing. And I wish that there was more research that could be done and that we could do to help kind of enhance that. Well, that's a great answer. And I love the work that they do at UPMC. Uh, really, really, really admirable. And I don't want people who are listening to lose sight of what you just said. You read some articles, you went to a facility who wasn't monitoring or was under monitoring, either one could be the case, and you mm -hmm. use the literature and the knowledge that you learned from it to guide them to change their practices or at least have the conversation. And that's really how you do it. 
Uh, so that's fantastic mm-hmm. that you do that. And I think that's a great lesson for anybody who's out there listening is that that is how you change hearts and minds. The other direction that I want to go with this is, is there an idea or a concept that experts in neuromonitoring say or espouse that you tend to disagree with? Um. Just in in the past, as I've gone facility to facility, I've I've worked all up and down uh, the Northeast at this point. And some places you work, there's different rules, guidelines, protocols, things like that. I don't like when anyone says that their signals are good enough. That makes <laughs> my skin crawl because <laughs> my brain is so attuned to perfect data and averaging out my SSCPs. So when people take 30 averages on SSCPs and they're like still noisy and they're like, that's fine. That's intolerable to me. Yeah, that's that's a problem. I actually saw somebody once <laughs> who did one average with SSCPs. They hit start, stop, save over and over again. Ridiculous. Oh, I'll go back to your Venn diagram. I just thought of that. Can I reinsert a hole in that model? Yeah, absolutely. Go for it. I think in addition to that Venn diagram, if you had to add another circle that would overlap and, and make that a little more sensible in all realms is uh, visualization and reflection. Nobody gets anywhere without knowing where they want to go. And that kind of goes into aspiration. But that's also a different drive and mindset is to visualize and reflect if you didn't go home and reflect on what you did every day, you wouldn't learn as much. So I think reflection is like a really large piece of like an internal drive that is also a driving factor for people is you go home and reflect what you could do better. And then you realize that you could have done better and that makes you want to do better. So that reflection piece goes into that as well as a visualization visualization boards are a new thing that people are starting to do. But I've been doing that since I was little. I knew I wanted to work in healthcare. I knew I wanted to work in medicine. I didn't care what path I had to take to get there. I was just ready and willing to learn in whatever capacity, in whatever subset, nuclear medicine, EEG, whatever, to get to what the ultimate is. And I had no idea that IONM would be my ultimate. So when you aspire to be something, you don't know what you're aspiring to be to because you don't know what internally it is that you have a passion for until you start doing something and you find this and you are like, that's it. So I think when you have an internal drive and reflect and you keep reflecting and you keep visualizing what it is that you want to do, eventually you'll get there. Even if it's not what you aspired to be, it's what you wanted to do. And what I always wanted to do was help people to the best of my ability. And I believe that IONM allows me to do that. Oh, that's really interesting. I'm going to have to think about that, but I really like that concept. Thank you. I'm not sure how involved you are with the professional societies, but I'm just curious if you have any ideas about what the professional societies are doing right or doing wrong. I am involved with ASSET. I go to all of their yearly conferences. 
Um, I'm actually trying to be a presenter uh, next year in regards to either interesting cases or cardiothoracic cases, something along the lines of, of those things. And I'm also on the research uh, task force committee for asset. So we're kind of remaking a handbook currently to get people to be able to do research a little more easily. Many people want to do research, but they kind of like don't know where to go or don't know where to look or don't know how to start or even write an abstract. So we're putting together an ad, a handbook that allows people to know where to go and how to find it easily. And if they have questions, there's it's kind of like broken out. Um, so that's been really interesting to be a part of. If I had to say something that they're doing good. I think they do a really fantastic job connecting people. I think they have a lot of resources available that connects the field and allows you to be a participant if you want to be. If you don't want to be, you don't have to be, but you could still be a voyeur on the sidelines and just read stuff and not participate. But there's a lot of opportunities to get involved. And I, I really think that that's fantastic. Uh, I think a miss probably is whenever everyone tries to have meetings it's difficult for people to all align if there was more opportunities to meet later at night i know a lot of people might not like that but it gives people that are stuck in the or until late at night another opportunity to get in on that meeting to be a part of that committee because i think that's a big hindrance is you know a meeting at one or two o'clock when that's never going to happen when you're in the or until six o'clock so I, I think that that could be a little better is just to make a better adjustments to time frames and time zones. Yeah. Speaking of aspiration, uh, one o'clock in the afternoon meetings are aspirational for sure. And uh, <laughs> I totally agree. I, I love asset. Uh, I'm involved with, you know, multiple societies, asset, ASNM, ACNS, and uh, asset does a really good job of of building bridges, and I really love that. Well, I want to end by asking you what I call three signature questions. I ask all guests these questions. I like to see how different people answer them. So question number one, from where you sit, if you could give some advice to people in neuromonitoring in like five to seven words, think it fits on a PowerPoint slide, what would that advice be? Put your best foot forward every day. Do what's right for the patient. I love it. And you might be the first person that said something that actually fits on a PowerPoint slide. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The gauntlet has been thrown down. Okay. Do you have any (laughs) insights or thoughts regarding how to inspire people in general to be more invested in their careers? You know, I I think about this question a lot um, because I talk to new grads a lot. I try to stay involved with Bloomsburg and try to get this field more known, especially since Bloomsburg has a relationship with our company. And I think that if people understood how versatile this field was, that they would be more adept to wanting to see themselves in this for a long period of time. You don't just have to be a neurophysiologist in the OR for the rest of your life. You could be a manager, you could be a director, you could be an educator, you can be in research. There's many different facets that you could take from this career. You could be in the societies, you can propel and be in the societies like you are and be a high level and touch people's lives. 
if you have a desire to do what's right for the patient and you want to advocate for your patient every day, then the OR is for you. But if you wanted to get into other assets, you can do that too. So I think that this is one of the fields that's so versatile and people don't take advantage of that enough. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, where you start doesn't need to be where you end. There are so many directions you can go with your career. Okay, one final question. I know I'm supposed to be interviewing you, but I want to give you the opportunity to ask me any question you want. So what, if anything, would you like to ask me? What is your greatest work in your extensive career? You've done so many good things. So I would love to hear what what you're most proud of and what what made you feel like this is the best career for you. Oh, that is a tough one. I think the thing that I am most proud of professionally, I think it would have to be the impact that I've been able to have on other people. I am someone who really enjoys empowering other people, helping them to learn. Like right now, I'm working on this talk. So I had this idea for a talk. And the title of the talk is Public Speaking for the Neurodiagnostic Professional. And the idea came from talking to people who just don't know how to get up on stage. Um, it's not for everybody, but there are people who would like to be able to do it, and they just don't know where to start. They don't know how to get invited. They don't know how to pick a topic. They don't know how to put together a presentation. Um, and all of the little things that go into that and all of the stuff that goes into giving a talk, like reading the audience, mm -hmm. um, understanding your audience. Like I could give a talk on the exact same topic to two different societies and they would be completely different talks because the people in the audience are different. Mm -hmm. And so I want to be able to empower people who want to speak to feel confident that there's a pathway to do it. And it's stuff like that that makes that is really rewarding for me. I just like to help other people. So when I look back, and we all do this as managers, as mentors, as people, we make mistakes and probably mm -hmm. look back like 10 years. I'm like, man, I could have done that a lot better. But um, you learn from those mistakes and you become a better manager, a better team player, a better mentor, whatever it is. And you're better for the next person and the next person. And so when I look back, um, yeah, I have a lot of accomplishments, but the thing that I'm most proud of is the lives that I've touched and people that I've developed. And I love doing that. So I think that's fantastic. And I'm certain that they appreciate you for it. And that takes a special person to be able to do that too. So that's awesome. Yeah, I think so too. Well, Shakira, Thank you so much for being on the show and sharing your expertise, insight, and advice on leadership and mentoring. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. I'm happy to be here. Shakira Tassone is a senior surgical neurophysiologist with a refreshing perspective on leadership and mentoring. Be sure to connect with her on socials and check out Wisdom Wednesday posts on LinkedIn. Well, that's it for today. Please continue sharing this podcast on socials and through word of mouth. Also, many thanks to everyone who's been sending me email and texts. I love reading your comments. 
Please continue sending your comments, insights, critiques, pushback, validation, and thought-provoking questions to stimulatingstuffpodcast at gmail.com. I always love hearing from you. I'm Rich Vogel, and that was Stimulating Stuff. The information and opinions provided in this podcast are those of the individual speakers and do not represent the opinions of their employers, affiliates, or other third-party individuals or organizations. Sponsorship and other advertising messages do not constitute support of or preference for specific products or services. This podcast is not designed to and does not provide medical advice, diagnosis, opinion, treatment, or services. This podcast is host and all participants, including guests and sponsors, collectively participants, provide general information for entertainment purposes only. The information provided in this podcast is not a substitute for medical or professional opinion, and you should not use the information for that purpose. Participants shall not be held liable or responsible for any advice, course of treatment, diagnosis, or any other information, services, or product you obtain or render. This podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing Establishing a standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast. Thank you for listening.